ASN Kidney Week 2016 in Chicago, Illinois featured multiple late-breaking clinical trials with new insights into transplantation, dialysis, and other areas of nephrology such as glomerular and autoimmune diseases. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, Dr. Pascal Lane and Dr. Gretchen Brandt discuss the studies presented at this year's high-impact clinical trial session. Hi, this is Pascal Lane. I am Professor of Pediatric Nephrology at the University of Oklahoma. And this is Gretchen Brandt. I'm a nephrologist at Kaiser in Washington, D.C. And we had the privilege of moderating the press conference for the late-breaking clinical trial abstracts. And we're going to share some of our thoughts about these amazing clinical studies. So the first study that we heard from was the results of the LEADER trial. The study was entitled, In the Liraglutide Effect in Action in Diabetes, Evaluation of Cardiovascular Outcome Results, the LEADER trial. And it was a nice trial in the sense that there were 9,340 patients with type 2 diabetes and high cardiovascular risk profiles that were randomized to either liraglutide, a long-acting glucagon-like peptide 1 analog, versus placebo. And over the course of 3.84 median years, a composite outcome of kidney dysfunction or death due to kidney disease occurred in fewer participants treated with the liraglutide than with the placebo. So 268 of the 4,668 in the drug arm versus 337 of the 4,672 in the placebo arm. And this translated to a 21% risk reduction. And so the author's overall assessment was that liraglutide, in addition to standard of care therapy, reduced the progression of diabetic nephropathy. Pascal, what did you think of the trial? Well, I thought it was very exciting to see this. I had seen the primary endpoint presented at the diabetes meetings last June, so I knew that it had a good outcome with the cardiovascular endpoint. We always hope that since kidney and heart are sort of linked, that if it's good for one, it'll be good for the other, and it was exciting to see that. So I'm very hopeful that some of these new agents will help us reduce or at least retard the progression of diabetic nephropathy. Yes, and you know, as you were saying when we were talking after the session, that cardiovascular disease is the number one issue for our CKD patients, but we get a little bit greedy and we want a little bit more. (laughs) So if we can slow the progression of diabetic disease as well, it just is a win-win situation for our patients. So it's just a really awesome outcome for our patients as well as for uh, disease modifiers. And just think of the savings both in suffering and monetarily if we can keep people off of dialysis for six months or 12 months. Yes, exactly. And I was speaking to one of my endocrine colleagues before coming to the meeting and I asked her about the um, GLP-2 agonist. She said, you know, they're really easy to carry in your pocketbook. They don't have to be refrigerated. They lower the hemoglobin A1C by an additional roughly one point. And so it is a nice tool in our armamentarium for patients with diabetes and kidney disease. But then I work for Kaiser Permanente and we're always thinking about the cost. As are all Americans and all of us around the globe thinking about the expense we spend for medications. So I think that definitely is one of the things that we have to consider too is the expense. Um, subcutaneous injections, maybe not so fun for our patients. GI side effects, those things. Yeah, there's a downside to everything, so those will have to be weighed out in the long term. But all in all, it's always good to have another medicine that seems to work. Yes, agreed. 
So it gets me excited, and anything that can get me excited for my patients to get their diabetes under better management might get the patient excited, and we might have a better outcome for the patients. So we'll have to watch. There's a burgeoning of studies. These medications, the um, DDP4 inhibitors, the SGL2 inhibitors, and as we're talking about the GLP-2 agonists are not so new in the armamentarium for diabetic control, but there is now an increase of CKD studies that are coming out. So we'll have to watch and see how they play out, but it's exciting. I mean, that we have the old metformin that we're having new data showing that if we push that to higher doses, perhaps that's safe in CKD as well. So that might be more cost effective, but at the end of the day, it's yeah, nice to have something else in your armamentarium. Well, I was very excited about the next study on the list, the Remote Ischemic Preconditioning RIPC trial. This is a virtually cost-free status to improve kidney transplant outcomes. And basically, they showed that this RIPC leads to sustained improvement in allograft function following live donor kidney transplantation. And this is a five-year follow-up study in the renal protection against ischemia reperfusion in transplantation, aka the repair study. You gotta love these names. Love them, yes. Uh, so as we were talking about this morning, RIPC is putting a blood pressure cuff around a limb inflating it to impair blood flow to the limb so the body senses some degree of ischemia and then letting it out. You do that a few times over a while. And so you you just gotta remember to do it and otherwise it's not gonna cost anything. There's no drug or fancy equipment involved. And they're now showing that there's higher estimated GFR after five years, uh, which should extend the life of the allografts for a considerable length of time. They now need to uh, understand how this works and to figure out ways to develop it into clinical practice. But it's exciting to see a positive trial for something that is so incredibly easy to do. Yes, isn't that cool? Because, I mean, think about this. You can take a blood pressure cuff in any remote part of the globe. It's not dependent upon high resource income areas and it's low income, uh, low resource opportunity. You can just take a blood pressure cuff and have your protocol with the transplant surgeon and precondition. In I think in this trial, both the donor and the recipient were preconditioned and it showed, as you say, Pascal, five-year outcome of better protection for allograft function. And that's a really cool thing for our patients. And when I was speaking with a transplant surgeon colleague and asking him if we do this routinely in our patients who are being transplanted, he mentioned that this was not something that they were routinely doing. So I had been thinking about that and wondering, well, maybe you and I should be talking to our surgeons about this opportunity, seeing what their protocols are, and if this is an opportunity to influence that downstream. And I believe this is the first time it, this uh, technique has been reported to have a positive outcome. And to have five-year data showing a positive outcome is incredibly encouraging. So I can't wait to take this back to our program and talk about it. Yes, exactly. So we get the conversation started. Yes. <laughs> Continuing. Okay, so what's our next trial? You know, 
Just one last thought on the ischemic preconditioning. We are coming, I was, you had mentioned it actually, Pascal, that we're coming back to the basics of physiology and pathophysiology. We still don't really fully understand why this works. Right. It feels like you're priming the pump a bit, that um, you're kind of warning this transplant that downstream there's something about to happen, be prepared. It's sort of like getting your flu shot and making sure that when you see the flu itself, you're ready to go. Not that you want the flu, but it's a nice uh, reminder that there is more bench research to be done to understand this situation a little bit better. Certainly, and I hope that we can find things that are simpler and along this line as well as the more sophisticated treatments. Which takes us to one of our other trials that we heard about, which uh, Dr. Hugo presented information on rabbit ATG versus basiliximab induction for rapid steroid withdrawal after renal transplantation. It was an open-labeled, multi-center, randomized controlled trial. And this was a very nicely designed trial where they looked at 615 kidney transplant recipients to either receive the basiliximab induction or the rabbit ATG induction, along with the standard tacrolimus, MMF, and steroids. So they withdrew the steroids at day eight. They saw um, no difference with either of the induction drugs and withdrawal of the corticosteroids was, came off without any increase in acute rejection episodes. Uh, it was associated with a lower risk of post-transplant diabetes in their population. Now their population is not what most of us in the states are seeing. This was a German study which I believe was 98% Caucasian and was not sensitized to the antibody panel to any great degree, so they were very low-risk patients. So I don't know how generalizable this is going to be, but certainly getting people off steroids will make them happy, regardless of whether they get diabetes or not. And not being, having diabetes is always a good thing. Yes, I think the one thing that hit me this morning when he showed the slides of 10 years out with the USRDS data, when you have diabetes versus not have diabetes post-transplant, the outcomes are so much better when you don't have diabetes. So anything that we can do in terms of an induction regimen for withdrawing steroids safely, as you note, Pascal, this was the low PRA, 98% Caucasian patient population with low immunologic risk profile. So that obviously has impacts for our patients in the United States sometimes, but I think it's exciting because we're on the frontier of perhaps pushing that regimen for getting a steroid-free or a rapid steroid withdrawal regimen that can help our patients downstream. And as our patients are living longer, hopefully we'll see some outcomes that are positive for them downstream, and then we won't be looking at second kidney transplants, third kidney transplants like you were talking about this morning in your pediatric population. That is true. Well, our next study is the sodium lowering in dialysate trial. This is also known by the moniker SOLID. It's a randomized controlled trial of low versus standard dialysate sodium concentration during hemodialysis for regression of left ventricular mass. Uh, this was conducted in New Zealand, and this was patients who were on hemodialysis, often at home, and it was to look at whether reducing the dialysate sodium would help reduce the amount of left ventricular hypertrophy that was present in the patient population. They did find that there was lower interdialytic weight gain and perhaps some change in blood pressure. However, they didn't find a positive response in their primary endpoint of left ventricular mass. 
However, the study was only a few hundred patients, and it may be that other issues besides salt will be the keys to preventing or, or improving this cardiovascular outcome. They also are planning to extend to a larger multicenter study to see if there are benefits above and beyond the endpoints they've already examined. Yes, I think as you said, Pascal, there's, this is a nice trial with 99 patients, so not a lot, but they're on home hemodialysis. And in my mind, those are always patients who are doing well in general. So then you're going to try to make a positive impact on some parameter when they're already doing well for an ESRD patient. So I think the endpoint of left ventricular mass is a difficult one, and I think the good news about this, even though it's a negative trial, it's nice to have those in the literature, that the good news about this trial is that it's a very low cost, easy intervention that we can do at the bedside, at the chair side, that is potentially, like you said, secondary outcomes with blood pressure, potentially helpful to our patients without harming them. Although, as you noted, there was an increased incidence of interdialytic hypotension which the author of the trial suggested we as clinicians don't always pay attention to. We sometimes forget that even though the patient looks okay at the bedside or at the chair side, they may be experiencing these things that are not so fun. The other issue he didn't address this morning that I hope will come up when we hear the full paper tomorrow is whether or not people shorten their treatment because of the hypotension, uh, because that might explain part of why they didn't see any effect if they were getting less dialysis. But uh, we'll have to wait until tomorrow for we'll those numbers. We'll have to wait till tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I was just going to say, I think it is tough to do dialysis studies with lots of variables, and left ventricular mass reduction is, is hard. Shall we move on to the next one? Yes, next study. So our next study that we heard about this morning was the ARA-LV, Successful Treatment of Active Lupus Nephritis with Baclosporin. And this was a trial of 265 patients with lupus nephritis. 32.6% of the patients received low-dose baclosporin, and 27.3% of the patients received high-dose baclosporin. And they achieved a complete remission at 24 weeks, compared with 19.3% of patients receiving placebo. They also noted that partial remissions were more common in patients receiving either the low or high-dose baclosporin than in those receiving placebo. They noted too though that the side effects were higher in the patients treated with baclosporin, consistent with increased immunosuppression, but that the favorable results will help plan subsequent studies of baclosporin and lupus nephritis. So, Pascal. Well, always having another drug for lupus is a good thing, especially one that is not related to the other classes of drugs that we've used before. We can often get kids, the children I treat with lupus, who are primarily teenagers, into remission with the usual runs of drugs, but then they relapse and we need something else to try and keep them from doing that again. Um, we've got a handful that we've started on tacrolimus, which is a cousin of the voclosporin. And, you know, it, it seems to work in those patients. So it's encouraging to see this class of drug being tested for lupus and showing such a good outcome. Another exciting thing was that in this case, the lower dose of the drug was just as good as the higher dose, and they didn't have to test levels of it. So, you know, you just put someone on a dose and you don't have to have quite as much blood monitoring for them, which is also exciting. 
Um, we have readily available TACRA levels here in this country, but other places don't. And I am certain my patients would appreciate a few less sticks each year. Oh, yes. So I think, like you said, this was a really neat trial because it was the first study for active lupus nephritis that met its primary endpoints and the first global trial to do so. And as you noted, Pascal, nicely, they met their endpoints. There were more deaths, 11 out of 13 deaths, attributed to an increased lack of safety. I had the impression that it was in more of a resource-limited location where they had some safety compromise of the patients for the death. But as we know too, our patients with active lupus are also very vulnerable to uh, lots of complications. But they did this using a new medication, Voclisporin, that's a novel calcineurin inhibitor that they basically took the addition of one carbon molecule and enhanced the binding capacity of the VCS cyclophilin complex to calcineurin and then we're able to do just flat dosing so there's no need for drug monitoring so that was really cool like you say in a resource limited location wow to not have to uh, check drug levels very nice and it's also impressive to get such good results across most continents in the world i don't believe there were any patients in antarctica but i think otherwise <laughs> they had a center in at least every landmass on the globe mm -hmm with a wide representation, hopefully when we see the data tomorrow, wide representation of different racial mixes, different ethnicities, male, female, so forth. Yes, it's always good to see a positive study in nephrology. Yes. Anything else on that one? They mentioned that they had the usual side effect profiles with blood sugar, lipids, neurologic tremor, infection, risk. So I look forward to tomorrow's session where they can elaborate maybe a little bit more on some of those side effect profiles. But I think calcineurin inhibitor versus MMF versus rituximab versus cytoxia and cyclophosphamide, this is going to be a nice addition to our armamentarium for lupus nephritis. Yes, it will be when it finally gets approval. Yes. Okay. Well, our last study is one that I may be a bit biased about because I had patients in it. It was efficacy and safety of sparsentin, a dual angiotensin II and endothelin type A receptor antagonist in patients with focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. This was the phase two trial called DUET. Um, as I'm sure everybody listening to this nephrology podcast knows, focal segmental sclerosis is a bad kidney disease, often presents with nephrotic syndrome or asymptomatic proteinuria often thwarts all efforts to treat it, and some patients are left with chronic proteinuria. We do things like treat with anti-angiotensin therapy to reduce proteinuria and to help retard the progression of the loss of GFR, but still roughly half of patients who are affected go on to have end-stage renal disease over five to 10 years. This new drug is a single molecule, sparsentin, and it blocks both the angiotensin II and the endothelin type A receptor. So it's hitting both of these pathways that have been shown to promote a variety of kidney diseases. There is no specific FDA-approved treatment for focal sclerosis at this point in time, so it's pretty exciting that they decided to go after this relatively rare kidney disease. Uh, the drug was well tolerated, had no major side effects when compared with herbisartan, 
They did a double-blind eight-week run-in period with a variety of pharmacokinetic studies and other measurements. And then they went open-label on the sparsentin, and they're currently in a two-year follow-up phase with the same group of patients. Um, proteinuria, the protein to creatinine ratio, was the endpoint, and looking at the reduction in it from baseline after a two-week washout of whatever drugs the patient had been on ahead of time. Uh, basically, they showed that both drugs lowered proteinuria, but the lowering was 40% greater with the sparsentin than it was with herbisartin. Now, the FDA doesn't recognize reduction in proteinuria as an endpoint for these sorts of drug studies yet, and there are plans to move on and do a longer-term double-blind study of herbisartin and sparsentin uh, to try and look at rate of reduction of GFR and get something more relevant to getting a full approval. But as a pediatric nephrologist, I can tell you anything that lowers proteinuria that much better has got to be good for the patient. There's also a paper at this meeting that's reporting a new sustained partial remission composite endpoint that they have looked at in this population and found that it was achieved much more with sparsentin than with herbisartin. So we may actually have a pretty good treatment for focal sclerosis here. Yes, Pascal is fun because when I was looking at this, I mean, I guess it started with Irbisartan being, it's a nice example of translational research is what I was reading about, because when they discovered that Irbisartan had some of the same qualities of angiotensin 2 and they were able to develop a drug that had both angiotensin and ETA receptor areas. So they then did the lab studies animal studies, clinical studies, clinical trials, and now we're at the point where we're getting some exciting outcomes for the patients. And it's a well-tolerated drug from what we were hearing. I think there was some wind of potential anemia side effect that maybe you could talk about. Um, they haven't shown any anemia data to us yet. Uh, the main thing everybody was concerned about was hyperkalemia, which was not a big problem with either drug in the study. So. That was pretty happy. Uh, the other thing is there's a lot of secondary analysis that I think is gonna come out of this group, looking at prior immunosuppression and uh, relapses and things like that that we just don't have any data on yet. So I'm looking forward to seeing full presentation and then seeing what they do with this drug in the future. Now, what about edema, side effects of, with edema? Should we be using more diuretics when we have the opportunity to use this medication or what are your thoughts on it? Well, I always use diuretics if they're needed, and there certainly wasn't a big increase in edema in either arm of the study. So I think we probably just have to do what we need to do for each individual patient. So this is very reassuring and it's very nice because when we've had these trials with ACE and ARB combination, we've had is increased incidence of hyperkalemia, increased creatinine, but now it feels like the best of both worlds. We're getting the angiotensin and the endothelin receptor together without major side effect profiles. So ease of dosing, one medication, I think it's gonna be fun for our patients, potentially downstream. I mean, when you start talking about mixing an ACE and an ARB, you're hitting the same pathway in two different spots. So it's not a big surprise that you're going to get increased side effects over either drug alone. Um, but this drug allows us with one medication to hit two different pathogenic pathways. 
and reduce the protein spill without increasing the side effects over either of those drug classes alone. So a cool example of translational research from bench to bedside. Yes. yes. <laughs> Still has a little longer to go before we can all have it at our bedsides, mm -hmm. but uh, some very exciting developments with a disease that, like I said, we've got very few treatment options for at this point. We have our ACE, our ARB, plus minus the lipid agents, plus minus some aspirin, blood pressure control, of course, but there really is not a lot. You can use steroids, but when you have an obese patient whose glucose is on the margins, then you're nervous to give steroids in that setting when the literature is not that strong. And then you have opportunity for perhaps some cyclosporin, but then that knocks off your renal function. So here we have a drug that, as you say, on the horizon looks very yes. promising. And some patients will respond to rituximab, especially those who've shown a prior response to other immunosuppressive drugs, but a lot of them after a few years quit responding to that. And then we're sort of back to the ACE-ARB trying to reduce their proteinuria, and this gives us a more effective way to reduce proteinuria and hopefully retire their kidney disease. And the rituximab with its increase in side effects with immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, those were the abstracts we heard this morning, and I'm looking forward to getting the full presentations me too. tomorrow. Yes, me too. And I hope everybody enjoys our thoughts on these wonderful pieces of clinical research. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.